0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, How We Made It in E-Commerce. I'm your host, Jasper Correa, the Pied Piper of e-commerce. And our guest today is uh, Carrie Smith, the founder of Unorthodox Ventures and Big Ass Fans, a company that he built to $250 million in revenue and then sold for half a billion to a private equity firm. So we're going to talk about both today, but we'll start with Unorthodox Ventures. Welcome, Carrie Smith. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Jasper. Love to. From your LinkedIn profile, you say that Unorthodox Ventures is your unique take on the quote-unquote business incubator that started as an internal project when you were doing big-ass fans to spin off new ideas. And so today, it seems like there, there are way too many incubators chasing the very few high quality companies. So perhaps start by telling us how you're different, how unorthodox ventures is different, and then how you go about finding the companies that have big ass potential to use the name of your former company. I
1: like that. (laughs) Well, I don't think today we would see ourselves as an incubator in any fashion. Well, I guess we are, but that's such a bad word because there are, as you say, there are an awful lot of incubators, but typically um, run by people that have very little business, real business experience. And when I say business experience, I mean, experience starting and growing a substantial company. What you have is you have a lot of investors, part-time investors, and bankers and lawyers who, honest to gosh, don't know very much about business at all. What we've done or the way we look at things at Unorthodox Ventures is that there are some good ideas out there. There's a lot of people that very bright individuals that want to start businesses. What we try to do is, rather than get focused on what the valuation is of the business, because that seems to be what everybody is focused on, is to look at the business, the individuals that are running the business, the business sector and determine whether or not the particular business with the entrepreneur has got a potential to grow. And if it does, we work with the entrepreneur to determine just what it's going to take to do that. And once we determine that, that basically is the entree to the valuation of, of the business. And I think that's important because. One of the things that uh, young entrepreneurs don't understand is, on the one hand, it's easy to give away equity, but if you're successful, the worst thing in the world is to lose your equity to basically a partner that is of limited value. So what we try to do is we try to set it up and we do it in a sense just the way I, I ran the business. And started the business at Big Ass, which is we didn't. We don't want to use any more money than we have to. We want to do everything in in the right fashion. Within our company, we have a lot of people that worked with me at the uh, Big Ass Fans Company, and we have a number of engineers. We have people that worked uh, in marketing, people that set up businesses overseas, and working with that group of people and the entrepreneur for the new business uh, whatever it is we're able to basically do all that we can do which from my perspective is well obviously we have money but our job as i see it is to compress the time frame that re- that's required to take a business from inception to a break even position as quickly as possible And so it took me, gosh, uh, close to 20 years to take uh, big-ass fans from zero to $265 That's because I did everything serially. I mean, I did everything one at a time, one thing at a time, simple because it was me doing it. And I recognize that with entrepreneurs, they're in the same situation. What we're able to do is do a lot of things or help the entrepreneur do things concurrently so that we can compress the time frame. The other thing that we're interested in is we're not interested in the op- entrepreneur doing anything other than running his or her business. We're not greedy, I suppose, as relates to equity. We think that our stake is what I would consider relatively small. Relatively small is somewhere between 25 and 30%. And for that, the entrepreneur has access or gets the money required to take the business to break even. And additionally has the, what I would call a executive suite that people who work with the entrepreneur to make sure they hire the CEOs, if they need a CEO, COO, the marketing people, and so on and so forth. Because there's one thing just to throw money at a problem, but if you don't know how to use it and don't know what to, I mean, don't know how to go about this sort of thing, it's sort of a waste. So basically, I think that's the difference between the way we approach a problem and the normal incubator, if you will. It's so true what
0: you say, I guess, because of all the headlines about unicorns and startup riches, anyone with a little bit of money, lawyers, doctors, software engineers, they're now angel investors. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's pathetic.
1: <laughs> and so <laughs> it really is pathetic, Jasper. I mean, these guys, they don't know jack about anything and they're telling these poor kids and a lot of times it is kids they're telling them what to do and where to go we get a lot of people oh you know i important thing is to get it manufactured if it's a hard product we normally do not involve ourselves in uh software and saas not not directly they'll say oh well get it made in china get a contract manufacturer get it made in china which is complete bs and then they'll say what you need to do make it cheaper and uh, sell it on amazon it's like that's the worst advice in the world i mean amazon is so predatory and don't worry about uh, marketing or ads the only marketing you need to worry about is your social media and facebook and then they they induce these kids to waste incredible amounts of money and get absolutely no return most of these angels as you say they've never done anything in terms of start a business now they've done plenty They may have managed an office, or they may have run a department or a particular company, but that doesn't—that's not starting a business. Being being an entrepreneur, starting your own business is a—it's a very personal thing, and if you've never done it, you can't imagine what sort of problems you face.
0: Yeah, so two follow-up questions on that. So you mentioned sector and you say that you're not doing SaaS. So first question is, are you focused on businesses in a particular sector that you feel you really understand and you can add value? Like maybe similar to big-ass fans. And then the second follow-up question is, how do you go about finding these companies? I know people who run incubators and they tell me that it's hard to find high-quality deal flow. So I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, that's because they're lazy. These guys are lazy and they don't know how to do it. In terms of the companies that we're interested in, we're interested in, I would say, more than not in hard products. And by that, it could be anything. Uh, it could be yogurt or it could be a, a, a medical device. Uh, if it's a medical device, uh, normally from our perspective, it would have to be um, at some point, we would have to be able to take it over the counter. So we're not really interested in selling. Uh, doctor, I mean, you know, devices directly to doctors. What's interesting to me is a lot of the companies that we uh, partner with, more than half of them are run by women. And I think that's interesting because software in the main is a bunch of little boys. And I mean, I like little boys and all, but uh, in terms of being serious, and actually running businesses, there's they're, they're few and far between. The women uh, take life and take this sort of thing much more seriously and more adept at uh, planning, and uh, they're much, much easier to work with. In terms of how we uh, source deals, well, one, we have a lot of people calling us, uh, and that's a good thing. doesn't mean everybody that calls us has a good idea, but, I mean, you have to listen to everybody. You never know. The other side of it is, is when we see something interesting, uh, we call people. We're not passive. And again, I think that if you've started a business, uh, you recognize that you can't be passive. If you're just going to sit on your duff and wait for things to come to you, you're going to lose. So we do, our guys do a lot of calling, a lot of talking to a lot of different businesses. If we see something that we think is interesting regardless of what it is uh i mean you could see it on the shelf at the store you could see it online it doesn't matter uh we're going to call those people and say hey how's it going how you know we're here we love to talk to you love to help and we do a lot of things for example one of the guys who was talking to a firm and and they said look you know we're doing great i mean and they really are it's incredible but that they're doing about 50 million this next year And they said, you know, we don't need any money. I mean, they're going direct and they don't need any money, but they're relatively young. And they said, you know, we would really, really like to talk to you guys if it's okay just to get some advice, just to bounce things off of you. And we say, sure. I mean, you know, that's fine. I mean, that's that's something that I find very rewarding. If you can help people, I mean, everything works when you help people.
0: Got it. What are some examples of companies that you're working with right now to help grow?
1: Well, for example, we are working with one company that um, is um, Awkward Essentials, and it's a young woman that started a company that, gosh, just just last year, late last year, and she needed some help. She's never ever run a uh, business. She's a very very aggressive, very intelligent young woman, and she has a product that, amazingly enough, it's for women, for, in the main for women, but it's. Um, after sex cleanup product, which I thought was fascinating. So what we've done is we worked with her and basically set up, we have a project manager that put everything on a schedule. Initially was manufacturing China because that's what she was, was, it was suggested she do. We're trying to bring the the, uh, manufacturing to the States, helped her set up her accounting marketing which is horrible I mean, using my Mar- you know that's a that's a that's something you have to talk about sometime as is, is marketing firms they're so freaking pathetic and useless distribution channels and so forth anyway the whole thing put it together so that she could launch by the end of the year but set everything up and it's just one individual now we've we, uh, she's hired two more people that we helped her find but basically it's taking an idea. She had a great idea. We invested the money that was required to get her to, or is going to be required to get her to break even and started structuring a business, an actual operating business. But that's what we do. I mean, it's our people that do this, where it's not like, you know, we say, Hey, you know, you need a marketing firm. Why don't you go out and get one? Which is just complete BS. Uh, Or, you know, you might need a, a social media person and in this case, social media is a good thing. It's it's something that really works. Advertising, we do the for the individuals, for the uh the the workers, for the individual that's hiring or that's um, doing the social media to make sure that she's uh has several candidates to look at, that she hired the candidate, and so on and so forth. It's just all the things that you need to do to get a business going, but to do it fast. And so we're doing this. I think all in all, it'll take us, it will have taken us about six months from the time we, that we met and got together until the time we do a national launch. And I mean, a full-scale natural launch. So it's, it's a fast track.
0: That's what we do. Got it. Awkward Essentials is the name of the company, right? Correct. Okay, I'll, I'll look them up. Let's talk about big-ass fans. I read your story in Inc. Magazine, and, and I gather that you came up with the idea for big-ass fans after you, you created this complex sprinkler system to cool buildings, and, and it didn't work. And then you realize, wow, there's a much simpler solution. Just have a big fan. You know, I see this phenomenon a lot among you know, people who are doing startups. They have this highly innovative, complex idea that doesn't get commercial traction. Just share your story with big gas fans and, you know, tell us what you learned and and anything else you think it's important for our audience to know.
1: You're right. I started a business that involved cooling buildings in large industrial buildings via the application of water, just the evaporation water from the roof, which is something that actually works, but it's very complicated and it was overly complicated, very difficult to understand, very difficult to sell. The upside to all of that was I learned quite a bit about a particular market, which I think is interesting, the particular market being industrial facilities, warehouses, distribution centers, manufacturing plants, and the people that ran them. And the people that run plants like that or places like that, they're not CEOs, they're guys and gals that are maintenance supervisors, maintenance department heads. And I worked with them over a period of about 10 years. And it was very interesting. I learned an awful lot about them, their problems, the way they solved problems. I also learned a lot about marketing and PR and so forth. I wrote a lot of articles explaining our process. In the end, we were never able to build that company to over a million and a half dollars a year. And so More or less, it was not a success. And so I began looking near the end of my time with that experience for other things. And I happened across a company that was manufacturing these big fans, but they just started, they didn't know what they were doing really. They used them for cooling cows. We were able to get together. I started marketing for them, my company, which I called at the time HVLS Fan Company very catchy name. And we started marketing, made an agreement that when we got to a certain point that I would be able to buy the intellectual property. We hit that point. I did. And from that point, a little bit before that, I changed the name to Big Ass Fan Company because I thought it was catchier. And it certainly was. But we were able to build out the company from there. So... Honestly, it went from zero to 265 million, though, as I said before, it took 19 years to do that. The name Big Ass Fans actually was uh, suggested by customers because when we started, somebody called us on the phone and we'd answer the phone, HVLS Fan Company, high volume, low speed fans. That's what they were. They were very large, but they were very low speed. And inevitably, the person on the other end of the phone would say, there'd be a little pause, and they'd say, are you those guys that make those big-ass fans? And it's like, yeah, I guess we are. took us a while to change the name, but when we did, it was well-received. And we got a lot of feedback. We got some pushback, but our customers, again, I think it's important that you know who your customers are, who you're selling to, whoever it is. And I knew these people that we were selling to, and they're sort of a down-to-earth bunch of people. A lot of them obviously had college degrees, but they were bright, ordinary people. When you're the maintenance director of a company, I used to say that the only person that knows more than the CEO does about the company is the maintenance supervisor, the maintenance director. And we know those people, and we knew that that name would appeal to them, and sure enough that it did.
0: So going back to the genesis of the idea, you know, you said you spent 10 years building this other company with sprinkler systems and that didn't work, but you learned the industry inside out. And so I'm wondering, were you an employee of one of these big industrial companies? Like, how did you get into this space? Are you an engineer by training and you had this idea and you thought that that sector would be the ideal customer or,
1: or how did you get into this space? That's what I'm curious about. No, I mean... I was in the space because of the initial business. But prior to that, I was not in that space at all. I actually worked in reinsurance. Okay. But the woman that runs, that owns Awkward Essentials, she's never been in that business either. That's not what's important. I think you have to know your customer. I think if you're from the industry, a lot of times that is not a good thing because When somebody's worked in a particular type of company for three or four or five years, they really do. They take to the plow. It's difficult to see anything outside of the ordinary, outside of the standard operating procedure. And as an entrepreneur, as a business person, I think you have to see beyond what those people see. And I'm sure that sometimes an entrepreneur comes from the industry. I certainly didn't. I just saw the opportunities. Because I was just looking for opportunities as a lot of the people that we work with. I mean, we have people making falafel that we're partners with, and that's not what they did before. I mean, they, they worked in the software industry. I mean, it's creativity. It's imagination. That's what it takes. Fair enough.
0: Yeah, I was just trying to understand, you know, were you scratching your own itch or were you just someone who saw opportunity? And so that context is helpful. It's both. It's both. And then you say in the most recent uh, edition of Inc. Magazine that you, you know, you built a company to $265 million in, in revenue and, and then you got sick of running it. You know, many founders describe their, their company as their baby and they're loathe to ever let it go. But in your case, you just decided that you were tired, you wanted to sell. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: What made you sick of running this awesome business that you built? I wouldn't put it quite that way, and I apologize if it comes across that way. It was basically, in one sense, it was my baby, but I mean, it was a 20-year-old baby. I mean, you know, you raise a baby, it gets 20 years old. I mean, you want to see it out of the house. To tell you the truth, it was a situation where I was ambivalent. But I will say this, when it came to selling the business... I made the decision I could do something different because, I mean, you do something for 20 years. I mean, honest to God, I mean, that's a long time to do something. Even though we did a lot of things, we thought about a lot of things, we're constantly changing things. It was still the same business. And we were uh, put in a situation where we were offered an amount of money that made me completely... I was completely indifferent as to whether I continue to own that company or I took the uh, money, that's a good place to be no matter what you're doing. Six of one, half a dozen of the other, it doesn't really make a difference. I'm glad that I did that because what we're doing now, I meet an awful lot more people. One of the things I think that when you're starting a business or you're running a business that you've started is you really are quite focused and you really don't meet a lot of other people. I mean, at least I didn't. And because you're completely, utterly focused on what you're doing. And so in terms of advice, some people that suggested, oh, you know, Carrie, you need a board of directors, that would help you. And so the people they suggested as directors were like bankers. I mean, Jiminy Cricket. I mean, who wants to talk to a GD banker? I mean, what does a banker know about this? And somebody that was the president of a water company. And that had nothing to do with what the sort of things I was doing. You do a lot of this just by gut. I wanted to do something different. And I'm glad I did this because this is very different. I get to talk to a lot of different people, such as yourself. And it's very, very interesting. I think that if you had asked me 10 years ago, when I was running the fan company, if there were a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, and I would have said, no, I I can't imagine. There's something about doing this or being an entrepreneur that you just don't see a lot of people like that but now i i've met more intelligent people in the last 3 years just because of basically having my nose to the grindstone you're able to to stop and look up and and see a lot of very interesting things more interesting things
0: yeah i can see how it's more intellectually interesting running unor- unorthodox ventures, evaluating lots of different ideas, talking to lots of different people versus just being, as you say, nose to the grindstone on one idea. Yes. You know, it's been three years since you sold the company for half a billion, to use your term, <laughs> those very boring guys, the private equity folks. And so some of them don't have the best reputation. They've been called vultures. They buy companies, they fire people, they gut the company and flip it for a few multiples down the road after paying themselves hefty sums. So do you have any regrets selling to them now that it's been three years and you've had time to reflect? And then the other question is, did they keep their promises to you and to the employees who I presume stayed with the company?
1: I think I understand private equity and I understand its value, obviously. I don't understand or I don't believe the hype that they're really very useful in terms of rebuilding companies and managing companies. They typically, they don't know anything about that. They really are. They're bankers and lawyers, and they just don't know anything. If it's a simple company, and our company was not really a simple company, if it was an ordinary company, if we were selling bread or uh, cookies or cosmetics, uh, running nursing homes. I mean, that's something these guys can understand. You can define everything as dollars and cents, and you can rejigger everything financially, if you please. It wasn't the case with us. They did. I will say that the firm we sold to did keep their promise at least for a year, more or less, as relates rejiggering the the um, employment of a lot of people. Since that time, I think they've recognized it's a little bit more difficult than they thought. You have to understand that we did not run the company. I did not run the company to make money. That wasn't the way I was looking at things. And that may seem odd, but with a company with $265 million, but we ran a company that was about the people that were working with me. As a matter of fact, and I don't know if you know that when we sold the company, I wrote checks... $50 million to people that work with me. And there were a number of them that were made multimillionaires, some of them just millionaires, and some of them more money than they get paid in a year, certainly more money than they expected to see at one time. That was very, very rewarding to me. And that was worthwhile, even though that seems like a lot of money. I'm glad I did that. So I guess the company looked like it could be easily trimmed down, and it certainly could in a lot of respects. But the PE firms are taking other people's money, other investors' money, and they have to put it to work, and they have to make their money back, and that's what they do. Overall, I would not want to be a PE firm because I think that it's... um, it forces people to do things that I wouldn't be comfortable doing. But that's just me. I mean, that's the way I look at things. So, I mean, running a business, what's cool about the whole thing is you get to do what you want to do. You get to imagine a product in a market or products in a market. It's an incredible intellectual exercise. Very interesting. Something not to be far gone. And it's something that can't be easily translated into money, into cash only. I don't know. It's a different approach.
0: I always love hearing about stories where, you know, the employees who worked with the founder and were there for the journey also get, you know, massive financial rewards. So great to hear about that. And so who are two other entrepreneurs or CEOs from recent
1: times that you admire and why? In terms of people I admire are, I should say, models that I admire because I really don't know people. I mean, I couldn't speak on a personal basis. Two companies I think are sort of cool. One of them is Spanx, which is a women's underwear, which I think was interesting because the woman that did it recognized that there was a problem with the women's pantyhose And she solved it, and she solved it and made a large business over a couple hundred million dollars using manufacturers in the States. She recognized that the object of the game wasn't to just create a product that cost less. It was a product that actually cost more, but was a superior product. The other, which goes back further, though all of these people are still in business, Zierman's Deli which is a company in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and really it's just a deli. But what I always found fascinating, and this is a long time ago, was that, again, they looked at life the same way that uh, Sarah Blakely looked at life with Spanx, and that was they created a very high-quality product. Their employees were well taken care of. But when you walked into this place, if you ask about a particular cheese, the person behind the counter would tell you every single thing about that cheese, where they got it, what it tastes like, why it was good, here, try it. And it was always more expensive. I mean, if you wanted cheap cheese, you go to Kroger's, but everything high quality. And the recognition that you can provide very high quality products and you can demand or command a higher price for them, that life isn't run on commodities. And that's what I think that a lot of people get in trouble with today, thinking about, you've got to go to China to get the product made because it's cheaper. You've got to sell it through Amazon. If you sell it through Amazon, it's got to be cheaper. It's all absolute BS. I think that there is a lot of opportunity in this country for people that are starting businesses to think about it in terms of make it better, build a better product, take care of it, make sure that the customers are taken care of, make sure your employees are taken care of, make sure everybody gets what they should get because life's too short to do otherwise. And you can do all of that. And if you tell the story, the consumers respect it and they will buy from you. I think that's what makes a successful business a successful community and business life. I love the Spank story as well and admire Sarah Blakely.
0: So, the very last question what's the one piece of advice you'd like to share with her audience during your journey as an entrepreneur? You said it took you 19 years because you're doing things serially. And so, of all the lessons you've learned, which one would you say is the most important that you'd like to leave with her audience as the one nugget of advice from Carrie Smith?
1: To distill my entire life into one sentence. There's a number of things that are important. I really do think that what I said prior to your question is important taking care of people recognizing that because what goes around comes around i mean that's just the way it is outside of that i would suggest that market research is something that people overlook you really do have to know who your customer is i mean one of the first things we do as unorthodox ventures is to determine who's the customer what moves the customer what's the demographic and it's amazing to me how few entrepreneurs and actually how few companies spend any time on that at all and what it really amounts to and i guess this is like everything else it amounts to you've got to get down and do some work and you've got to talk to a lot of people and your your people have to talk to a lot of people take a lot of notes understand if the product is going to have any purchase in the market and what it is about the product that makes it interesting to your potential customers and if you don't understand that you've got a problem you can waste a lot of time. In that first business you were talking about that I was in, I wasted years on that. That was the reason. I thought I knew something that I I didn't even ask the question. I thought I knew the answer. So I think that's
0: important. Thank you, Kerry Smith. I've enjoyed talking to you and I look forward to some exciting companies coming out of Unorthodox Ventures. We hope so. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Jasper. Bye-bye.